We're going to talk about the kingdom of God. What's it like? What's the characteristic of it? What's the DNA of the kingdom of God? Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is speaking, and he's going to give us a little insight. Verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you, he's talking to the believers, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus had one consistent message, and it's his good news. It's the word gospel. It's not a religious word. We've made it one today, but it was never a religious word. Uh, It was a loaded term in Jesus' day because Israelites, when they heard the word gospel, they referred back to the Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news the gospel, who proclaim salvation, who say to Israel, your God reigns. So it is with the idea of good news. The proclamation of the gospel was the news that God reigns. And the expectation was that it's going to come. This is what the Israelites thought. They thought that good news meant that the Romans would be overthrown, temples would be rebuilt, IRS would be abolished, the oppressors would be defeated, and it would come with an act of military strength and power. They were wrong. That was the good news they thought they were waiting for. And to the Romans, and in the Roman world, it was a loaded word. Tom Wright, who's an author, wrote this. The word for gospel, or good news, is a regular technical term referring to the announcement of a great military victor (coughs) or the birth or the ascension of an emperor, a new ruler, who's going to bring strength and good news to the Roman Empire. So in the Roman world, good news was synonymous with the Caesar being uh, inaugurated as being Lord. They use that kind of language. Now Jesus comes along and He says, I have good news. I have gospel. But it's going to be different than what you people in Israel think. And it's going to be way different than what you people in the Roman Empire think it's going to be. So after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus goes into Galilee, and He proclaims the good news of God. This is Mark chapter 1. The time has come, He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Good news translates gospel. So what is the gospel? It's that the kingdom, life in God's power, life in God's presence, is now available to anybody who wants it. Jesus taught about it all the time. He said it was the most important thing in all the world. He said in Matthew 6, don't worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear, for all the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them also. But seek first the kingdom of God. Let everything else be second place, then everything else will fall into place. Everything else follows after that. Now He sends out His twelve on a mission. This is Luke chapter 9. When Jesus called the twelve together, He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. Then in chapter 10 of Luke, the Lord appointed seventy others, sent them out two by two ahead of Him to every town and place He was about to visit. When you go into a town, He says, tell them the kingdom of God is near you. And then in Acts 1. Verse 3, after His death and resurrection, we're told in the book of Acts that He appeared to the disciples for a period of 40 days and taught them about the kingdom of God. Now, last glimpse of the church is in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 31. Boldly and without hindrance, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had one gospel, 
And that good news, that gospel was, with my coming, Jesus said, the kingdom just showed up. The kingdom is here. And it's a lot different than what you think it is. It's me. It's in me. It's in my life. It's in my word and my teaching. He said, now it's going to be possible for ordinary human beings to live in the power and presence of God. For anybody who wants the kingdom, Jesus is it. And I've talked about how in our day the gospel gets all messed up and religious and misunderstood, because a lot of people, when they hear the word gospel, think it's the announcement of minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven. But that's not what it is. A lot of people think the gospel is just how to get out of trouble with God, so He'll let you in. But Jesus never said, now I'm going to tell you about the minimal entrance requirements, so they have to let you in heaven when you die. What He said is, here's the good news. Now the kingdom has come to earth. Now up there, the kingdom of God is coming down here. If you want to, you can live in it. Jew, Gentile, old, young, hip, metrosexual, cool, elderly, free, slave, female, male, anybody who wants to live in it, it doesn't matter anymore. You can come in. The good news is especially for people who thought they were a billion miles away from God. You can turn around and rock right in if you want to, and the entrance is simply me. Now, His gospel included, of course, the free forgiveness of our sins, purchased by His blood on the cross because we were all guilty, are guilty, and need forgiveness. And it included the promise that death won't have the last word in God's world. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead meant that when we die, we live eternally with God. But the good news of Jesus is not, I'm going to tell you how to get from down here to up there. The good news is up here is coming down here. God made this earth, God loves this earth, and God intends to redeem this earth. So He says, when you pray, pray this way, Matthew 6, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Your government, your reign, your rule, your way of thinking come on this earth. Your will be done on earth, in summit, in the office, at home, in Indonesia, in Iraq, in Baltimore, in Ferguson, as it is in heaven. Let my kingdom come, because I'm going to change everything. And remember, in the very first verse we read, he talked about serving, and he talked about as the Lord and Master, He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give. Something's about to change everything in the mind of people. So the kingdom starts with Jesus, God in the flesh, coming upon this earth in a human body, His teaching, His life, and His resurrection. Now, if you're a believer, you're in the kingdom. If you're not, you can be. You just come to Jesus and say, I know the truth about me. My wife does too. I'm guilty. I confess. I want to be forgiven by you, Lord. I want to be your follower. I want to be your friend forever. And I want to be part of your kingdom adventure. That's the good news. So God says that in the Holy Spirit, there's new power available to the human race. Never been anything like it ever before. Dr. Rodney Starr, a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He calculated how it is that Christianity spread in the Roman Empire at the rate of 40 percent per 10 years, per decade. In the year 40 A.D., there were approximately 5,000 Christians in the world. Forty years after Jesus' death and resurrection, 
pretty insignificant, 5,000. But 400 years later, 350 A.D., there were 33 million. 56% of the Roman Empire named the name of Jesus. How did it happen? The Roman Empire was collapsing, yet the movement of Jesus was spreading, partly because people throughout that part of the world had never heard a message like this ever before. It was unthinkable. One of our problems today is that the gospel has been part of our American culture and world. Even in people who don't believe the gospel, it covers everything. It's been woven into our lives for so long, we take it for granted. We forget that a world apart from that message of good news looks pretty bad. We just grew up in this kind of a culture. So it colors and flavors everything, and we don't think much about it. But can you imagine people who had never heard such a thing in their life, how radical it was? Dan Shaw was a missionary and anthropologist at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. He gave his life to translating scriptures for a tribe in Papua New Guinea. It took years of devotion to do that. And one of the difficulties was that the members of this tribe believed in the supernatural. They saw spirits and gods all over the place. But they had no category. They had no word in their language for the idea of the one big God who created everything and who would redeem all things. So Dan had a problem. How could he communicate that idea? Dan spent years getting to know the people and the language, and he found out that in the extended families of this people, there would be a figure called the Hayo. That's a father figure who would settle disputes, make sure things were fair, equitable, make sure justice was served, and that people were taken care of. After years of getting to know the tribe, when Dan began to translate Scripture, he started with the book of Genesis, and he said this, Back before the time of your ancestors, the great Hayo created the heavens and the earth. And the people responded and said, wow, we had no idea there was such a being. Is this true? Is there such a one? And just to see if they understood the concept, Dan says, what if he's the Hayo for everybody on earth? What if he's the Hayo not just for you, but for your enemies? or for the cannibals across the river. And they said, oh, no. Oh, no. That would mean we would have to make peace with them. And for them, this message meant there's going to be serious implication about how life gets lived, where they are, and how they would treat each other. <clears throat> that was the kingdom of God. It would change how you behave and how you respond to other people. And the kingdom of God started to come to this tribe in Papua New Guinea. Something like this begins to happen in the Roman Empire after Jesus. This force of his life and his message and his story about God and God's love and the power of the Holy Spirit comes to this new community Jesus has formed, and Jesus uh, inaugurates it with this theme that I'm going to call servanthood. And deep at the heart of the kingdom of God is this idea of servanthood, and we struggle with it. The kingdom of the earth always struggles with it, and the Roman Empire struggled with it. So Jesus had to educate his followers about the kingdom and about life in the kingdom and servanthood. So he says in verse 20, Matthew 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus with her boys and kneeled down and asked a favor of him. 
What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these my two sons might sit on your right hand and the left hand in your kingdom. Don't want much, Jesus. I just want my boys to go first class. Now, they didn't really get the kingdom yet. They didn't understand it. And they're worried about where they're going to sit in the kingdom. Kind of a goofy thing, isn't it? Why, we wouldn't worry about what kind of seat we were going to have, would we? I got on a plane a couple of weeks ago, and when I boarded, we were separated into two compartments. There were people who sat up in the front compartment called first class. Back in the compartment where I was, it was called coach. Now, they don't say second class, but you know. First class, the desirable seats, is all about being served. Prestige. Everything is designed to reinforce the image of who's going first class. That's the kingdom of the earth. Now, I'm speaking spiritually, so stay with me. In first class compartment, people were served gourmet food on china and crystal. They had their own personal flight attendant. In coach, we ate snacks and paper bags. First class folks sat on thrones. They had wide seats, long leg room, free movies. In coach, we had cramped seats, no leg room, and we had to pay $5 for headsets that didn't work real good. In first class, people got warm, moist towels so that they could have comfort and personal hygiene. In coach, we had to sit and stew in our facial sweat. First class was closed off from the rest of us by a curtain an iron curtain, just like the Holy of Holies. And we could not go past that curtain, for we were in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, they had their own facilities up in first class, first class facilities for just a couple of people. Those of us in coach couldn't go past the curtain, even though there was an hour wait to use our facilities. They don't let you go past. That's the kingdom of the earth. Struggle to get into first class. One day Jesus leaves heaven, and He comes to earth. And the angels say, boss, you'll be traveling first class, of course. And Jesus says, no, guys, I think I'll go coach. You know, manger, stable, carpenter, no money, son of man has no place to lay his head. Yeah, think I'll go coach. So he came to earth, and nobody recognized him as Messiah because nobody expected the Messiah to fly coach. Are you hearing what I'm saying? All right. James and John came to ask if they could get in first class in the kingdom. Can we sit in first class? And when the other ten heard about it, they were indignant with the two brothers. And not only had the two brothers come to Jesus to ask, they sent their mommy to make make the appeal, try to soften Jesus up a little bit. And I can imagine Jesus just shaking His head. And then He says in Matthew 20, verse 24, you guys don't get it. You know that the rulers of the pagans lord it over the people, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great in My kingdom must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's life in the kingdom, 
set by the one who is the kingdom, the Lord Jesus. Now, why were the other ten angry when James and John asked for first class? Well, I mean, you're probably thinking because they were so committed to humility and servanthood. Oh, no. They, they wanted to be in first class. They were concerned about where they were going to be in the pecking order. And another illustration of kingdom life on earth, not the kingdom of God, but on earth, it's the pecking order. Did you know in the chicken pen, there's no peace till chickens find out who's the greatest and who's the least chicken. The top chicken eats first. He gets to pick on any chicken he wants. The middle chickens are pecked on by those above, and they get to peck on those below. The bottom chicken gets picked on by everybody. That's life in the pecking order. Ironically, there's been a lot of research on this, and nobody knows what makes a chicken dominant. Why is one chicken exalted and another chicken humbled? Researchers don't know. Lots of animals have pecking orders. Animal behaviorists know about orangutans. I read this last week. Orangutans have a pecking order. <laughs> Part of their rear end is blue. And those that are the bluest are highest in rank in the pecking order. So researchers did an experiment. They took an orangutan who was lowest in the ladder in this community of orangutans, and they painted his rear end royal blue. He, he became the number one orangutan. All the other males deferred to him. He had all the dates and all the girls he wanted. And then came bad news. One day the blue paint started to fade. <laughs> and he started the long slide down the ladder of success in Orangutangiaville or whatever. And he ended up, they said, one neurotic orangutan. A pretty silly, stupid system. Dr. Richard Foster writes this, how like chickens we are. There's always a pecking order in the kingdom on earth. You can tell it in subtle ways. Who gives way when two people are talking at the same time? Who gives way when two people are, uh, you know, laughing at a joke that isn't funny? You see it in offices a lot. Who's allowed to ramble and pontificate in conversation and who isn't? Who has to say, I'm sorry, and who doesn't have to say, I'm sorry? Go to a high school cafeteria, he writes. You'll find a table where the jocks and cheerleaders sit together. No geeky guy sits there. They wouldn't even try. Why not? There's no rule against it in the handbook. Ah, but it's the law of the pecking order. It's stronger than any law government will ever make. Nobody will violate it. It crushes the human spirit. It's the way things are in the kingdom on this earth. And Jesus said, come on, now you know how the rulers of the pagans lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Well, yeah, they know. That's how things work on earth. Then he says four words that change everything about the kingdom of God. And I hope you hear it. Not so with you. Not so with you, Summit. Not in your home, your office, your neighborhood, your church, your family. Jesus is abolishing this pecking order in the kingdom of God. He's calling for the creation of an alternative culture that expresses and incarnates the kingdom of God. Up there is coming down here now. 
He tells stories about the kingdom and what it's like. And today we have to figure out how to retell them so that people understand. So the kingdom of God is like an airline where there's no first class and no second class, and everybody's all together at the table. The kingdom of God is like Southwest Airline, but with better food. Yeah. And better yet, the kingdom of God is where people have money, buy the expensive tickets and get the best seats, and then give them to people who have no money at all. And where people who have power, instead of complaining about the service and how their tastes aren't being catered to, suddenly become spiritual flight attendants walking around to people who don't have any power or influence saying, may I help you? May I serve you? I remember being in Dallas, Texas a couple of years ago waiting on my flight to go to Sacramento, four-hour flight on American Airlines. And a lot of the GIs were coming back from a year's service in Iraq. And one of them, big, burly, 275-pound uh, sergeant, was, was standing near me, and I did what I always do, <clears throat> thanked them for their service to our country. <clears throat> and since there was a delay boarding, I just engaged him, where are you coming from? And he said, Iraq. And I said, how long have you been there? And he said, a year. And I asked him kind of what, he, what was his mission, what was he doing? And he rides in the front Jeep on a 50 caliber machine gun. He's the first one to get hit by the IED or take fire. Pretty, pretty hairy job running up and down those roads at that time. And I thought, holy cow, talk about stress. So he's coming home. He's flown 24 hours. And if you've ever been in the military, when the military flies you, there ain't no first class. They cram you in like sardines, and they don't care if you're comfortable or not. And so he had been changing planes with the GIs, coming home on the cheapest flight the government could get them. And he's, you can tell, he's worn out, he's tired, and now he's got one more leg to go. He's going to see his fiancée in Sacramento and can't wait to get home. I can only imagine what he felt like. And he's wiped out and tired. And I'm, I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, I ain't been up on no 50 caliber machine gun getting shot for a year. And I looked at my ticket, and it said 2A. I got thousands of frequent flyer miles. I'm going to ride in first class free. 2A. I'm skinny. He's big. He's tired. Now God starts messing with me. Four-hour flight. I'm thinking, going to go see his girl. Can't wait to get home. Wore out, tired. Sure be nice, Rick, if you put him in first class and you took his seat. Lord, that's a four-hour flight. <laughs> How about from Dallas to San Antonio at half hour? And I looked at my ticket. And you know when God's speaking to you? It, it's not every flight, folks. But you know when God's speaking to you to do something. And I said, would you allow me to do something? I gave him my card. I said, I'm Rick, and, and I pastor a church, and that's about all I said. No big witness. I just said, I pastor a church in San Antonio. I'm grateful for your service. And I said, I'm glad it's you and not me. But I said, can I do something? I said, here's a $100 bill. Take your girl out for a nice dinner tonight, and would you take my seat and give me your ticket, and I'm going to take your seat. Well, he, you know, he said, oh, no, no, no. I said, no, no, please. It would be an honor to give you my seat. And then I looked at his ticket. 35F, all the way, all the way to the frickin' back, to the laboratory, and the seat doesn't even go back. It won't go back, and there's no window, and that's where the engine is. And everybody going in the laboratory, and I'm in a middle seat, 
Oh my God, a middle seat. My knees are pushed in. I'm old. I don't, I'm four hours. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this is great. Nobody knows it. Nobody sees it. No flight attendant knows it. Nobody but God knows it. I got to make a difference in somebody's life. And so I'll suck it up and just hurt and be tickled to death. I got to serve. May I help you? May I serve? Whether it's big or it's small, God uses you in the kingdom to help people. And they're not all Christian, and they're not all in your group. And, and so it's, it's just who we are. That's how God advanced. What did he do? He served people of all kinds of races, pimps, prostitutes, bad people. And nobody resents a servant. Nobody gets mad when you serve them. And Jesus said, you know, the way up in my kingdom is down. So I don't care if you're a powerful CEO, a multi-million dollar sports star, when you come into the kingdom, when you come into my family and in my church, check that at the door. You're a servant when you come in here. I don't care who you are, you are a servant. Rich, poor, even James said, the rich don't get the best seats. Don't let the guy with the gold ring and the, and the expensive car or whatever have the, and put the man that doesn't have much money, put him in the back or somewhere nobody can see him. He said, don't do that in the kingdom. You serve people in the kingdom. And that's because God, who owns the airline and is the pilot of the flight, is walking around with a moist towel in a basin washing people's feet. And Jesus says, now, in what I'm doing to you disciples, washing your gnarly, yellow-toed, fungus-infected feet, you do the same for each other. So all we are in the kingdom of God is a bunch of foot washers. We're a bunch of servants. When we leave here, when we're out in the world, the world system is different. I understand that. But in the kingdom of God and in my heart and my attitude, I'm a servant. Now, this is not about where you sit on a stupid airplane, please. It's a heart attitude. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you have little, whether you have much, whether you have power or you have none in this family, everybody's treated alike. Everybody's equal in this family. Nobody is superior. We all have a different position. We all have a different function. But at the end of the day, I pick up trash. I fix things that are broken. I say, may I help you? And that's exactly the attitude all of us are supposed to carry all the time. No matter what race, no matter what chicken you are, Asian chicken, Hispanic chicken, a white chicken, a black chicken. We're all chickens in here and there's no pecking order in the house of God, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Nothing like the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is like a barnyard where there's no pecking order, and the greatest chicken is the humblest chicken, and nobody's strutting, and nobody's pecking, and every chicken is just looking out for every other chicken. Nothing like it in the kingdom of God. Uh, I was in London Heathrow Airport. I was waiting to board my international flight to come home, and I saw an elderly, elderly lady who couldn't speak English from the Middle East, and she was in a wheelchair and alone and frightened, and she couldn't communicate. Most of the agents are courteous. I'm trying to be nice, just like most police are nice. But you get rogue people in every in every field. You do. And they were mistreating her. And I saw her shaking, and she's old. And I know some of you don't think I'm compassionate, but my, I'd looked at her like my grandmother or your mother. And boy, the God has a lot to say about how you treat old people. So I better tell my staff, I'm old. You better be nice to me. <laughs> I look young, but I'm old. And, 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 and God says, don't you, you honor those people. You do not mistreat them in the kingdom of God. And so they were just blowing her off. And I knew she doesn't, am I getting on the right plane? 
am I going to sit in the right plane? Do I, I don't know where I am. I can't communicate. I can't speak well. And they're just brushing her off. And I just sat over there and watched that for a while. And I thought, what if that's my mother? What if that's my grandmother? What if it's your grandmother? And I marched my little proud sitting first class self right up to the gate. And I took over. And I got an agent, pulled that agent over. And I said, this woman cannot speak English. And she, let's give her some peace. And I said, sweetheart, don't you worry. We're going to get you on the airplane. Just like, I mean, I, I don't have any authority. I just took over right there to get her help. And they came over and helped her. But I felt like just for a moment, I was a good servant trying to help somebody. Wasn't a Christian, just somebody who needed some help. I'm God's ambassador just like you are. And I'm going to serve. I'm going to help just like I think Jesus would. And God says, just carry that attitude day in, day out, wherever you go, whatever you're doing. So people would sacrifice everything for this, their lives, their possessions, and they'd do it with great joy. And it started to turn the Roman Empire upside down. The early church did not meet in a building like this. They met in homes. They didn't own property. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. Romans 16, 5, greet the church that meets, and name some other people, at their house. And then in Philemon, chapter 1, verse 2, to Apthia and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. So I could read on and on and on. The church in those days assembled in homes, big households. So where did they meet? In a house. Now, a household in the Roman Empire was different than our household. It was a lot different than mommy and daddy and two kids. It was, the, it was the basic unit of life in the Roman Empire. It would be made up of the head of the household, then his spouse or spouses because of polygamy, children, slaves, former slaves who were now free people, clients of the house, hired laborers who worked for the house, and tenants. They're all in this big household. And almost everything about the household, who got the big room, uh, what clothes people were allowed to wear, who did the chores that were least desirable, like foot washing, uh, how people ate, everything was designed to reinforce the pecking order. And it was generally assumed that everybody would share the religion of the head of the household. Uh, here's a letter from a Roman author named Pliny about such a dinner in Rome. The best dishes were set before the host and a select few, cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. One lot was intended for himself and for us, another for his lesser friends, and the third for his and our free men. If anything was left over, it went to the slaves afterwards. Status. That's the way it was done. But in the kingdom of God, leaders eat last. We prefer one another. No, you go. You serve yourself. Well, we may run out. Too bad for me. Go first. Try that in our culture today. The big shot goes first. But in the kingdom, you hold back. Jesus said, uh, if somebody invites you to a dinner, take the lowest seat. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, if you go up to the highest seat, they may ask you to get up and move because a closer friend came in and they want to sit with them, and now you've got to get up in front of everybody and go down to the back. If you take the lowest seat, you can't go any further down. You can't get embarrassed. And then if the host sees you and says, hey, Rick, come on up here and sit by me, then you can walk up there with honor. Now, he's telling us how to do life in the kingdom. Don't flaunt yourself. Don't promote yourself. Let God promote you. 
Take the attitude of a servant. Now, when you get back out into the corporate world, the kingdom of the pecking order is going to take back over. But in your heart, it ought to be different. So, status was a household word in the Roman Empire. Then the church comes along. And they don't meet once a week in a separate building. This was a household. They daily were fellowshipping together in that family. And when somebody became a follower of Jesus, the whole household started to change by it. They behaved different. They treated each other different. It affected how they worked. It affected how they ate, how they served. And that's why when you read about people coming to Jesus in the New Testament, you read about them coming as households. Now, the rich people are buying the best seats and giving them to the poor, and powerful people are picking up a towel and washing the feet of slaves, and serving has become a household family word. The church is so passionate about it, whenever there was slippage in it, boy, the apostles tore into it. And Paul did this in Corinth at the Lord's Supper, and he's talking to some of the wealthier people. He said, this is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together, there are divisions among you as a church. They lived in a world and were practicing first class and second class pecking order. Or they reassembled by racial groups or by uh, financial groups, economic groups. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring a lot of food and make pigs out of yourself. Some are left out and go hungry. Why would you stoop to desecrate God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? So people here who have resources and means are feeding themselves first, giving themselves the best, and the poor are being neglected and left out. That's how it worked in Rome. But Paul is saying, not so among you, not in the church. You cannot shame God's poor. This is the kingdom. He said, I can't believe you're going to stoop to this level. So I'm not going to stand by and say nothing because this is a violation of God's kingdom. This is who we are. Don't let the world creep back into the church. So Jesus made serving a family, a household word. The gathering of Christ's followers was so different to the Roman world, they didn't know how to describe it. They had unions, they had households, they had clubs, they had temples where people would offer sacrifices to their gods, but they had nothing like this. So they call the church, these groups, these households, ecclesia. If you've ever heard the word ecclesiology, that's the study of the church, that's where it comes from. It was a generic word. In Greek, ecclesia simply means gathering. They didn't know what to call it. And the leaders of this church called themselves diakoni. The diakonist was a person whose function was to wait on tables. You're a waiter. That's what the leaders call themselves. We're just waiters. Isn't that kind of cool? Everybody in this room, let me tell you what you really are in the kingdom. You're a waiter. What does a waiter do? Well, unless some restaurants, you serve people. <laughs> right? I've been there too. And if you don't serve people well, money's going to walk away from you. Business is going to walk away from you. And so God says, you know, the revelation of my heart is servanthood. Jesus said, I came to serve, not be served, and I came to give. That should be the attitude. Well, I don't know. I'm not comfortable. Well, it's too cold today. See, you need to get a carnival cruise. That's what you need, because it's all about you. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, it's not about you. 
It's about others. It's about serving. Are they comfortable? Are you happy? May I help you? Is there something I can do to make, make it easier for you? You know, even on an airplane, I live so much on an airplane, I get a lot of stories from it. I saw a single mom with two babies fighting them. God bless her, she's stronger than ten men to fly with two little kids out of control. And asking some big overweight CEO, the flight attendant courteously asking for the mom, would you give up your aisle seat so she can have three seats to keep the kids? Nah, and a big... <laughs> I mean, this is... This is just a flight of 40 minutes to help a mom struggling with the kids. Nah, he ain't going to do it. I thank God Ricky was on board. I did it. But anyway, I didn't want to sit next to a window. I want an aisle. I don't want nobody crawling over. I want to be able to get up when I want to, go to the lavatory when I want to. I like, I like the aisle. I don't like being caged in and having to crawl over some snoring, sleeping person there. And they're not big seats anyway, right? But I just thought, well, that could be my wife with the kids, or it could be some of you with your little kids. There's just an occasion when you give up your rights. You just give them up to serve other people. Have you ever such a thing? Woo. Well, that's the kingdom. I mean, the Son of God gives up to serve you, gives up heaven, gives up eternity, lays aside all of His garments of deity and power and authority as God, and humbles Himself and becomes a man. I'd say that's pretty sacrificial. And you can't come if it rains. You, you think about it, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Plato wrote centuries ago, how can anybody be happy when he's the slave of anyone else? Jesus comes along and said, how can anyone be happy unless he's a slave of everybody? That's the kingdom of God. Never been anything like it. We don't just help Christians. We help social agencies. We help child welfare systems. We help our community. We don't care whether you come from a Buddhist family or whatever. If we have vacation Bible school, we'll pay your bill so you can come in and be exposed to it and have fun. We're here to serve people, Christmas, holidays, and anyway, to make your life more pleasant, to help the community. That's supposed to be what the church does. It's not supposed to be just for itself. It's supposed to serve other people. That's the kingdom. No first class, no second class, no pecking order, no impressing anybody, just a community of waiters and foot washers. So how's your heart on that subject? When a church points a laser on people's spiritual gifts, then leaders are leading, administrators are administrating, teachers are teaching, those with mercy gifts are showing mercy, shepherds are shepherding people, and people are using their gifts with a spirit of servanthood and a heart as a servant. Never been anything like it. Life in the kingdom is not serving occasionally. There has to be a concrete expression of it. When a church is arranged by spiritual gifts, not titles, not position, not status, not tenure, not by who went to seminary, but just spiritual gifts, everybody then who follows Jesus becomes a servant. It's about being a servant and making servanthood a household word in my home, in my cubicle, in my office, in my school, in my neighborhood. And I need God's help to do that. And I can't do it occasionally. I can't do it just when somebody's watching. And I can't do it just when I feel like it. To become a servant means I'll do it when nobody's watching. And I'll do it even when I don't feel like doing it. It means I no longer do it for the applause of man or recognition but because I follow a towel-carrying, cross-bearing Messiah who flies coach. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord. 
For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.